All right, that's all of the news items out of the way. When our uh, children were young, and this is not surprising having two parents who are both uh, preachers, but our kids just loved to talk and they would sit around the, the table and just chatter non-stop. And so we had to say to them if we had guests coming around, please don't hog the conversation. What you've got to do, what you've got to learn to do is you've got to learn to listen. And so we encouraged our kids to, whenever we had guests over for dinner, to ask, ask, ask questions of our guests. Don't just talk. And so our kids, their, their, their favourite question that they like to ask any visitors that came over for dinner was this, what is your most embarrassing moment? <laughs> that was the question that they loved to ask. And you could see the look on, on people's faces as like, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, I'm sure at least every one of us has an embarrassing story to tell. Would that be true? Yep. I'll t- I won't tell you Louise's most embarrassing moment. I'll save that up for another time because it is just so good and I love it. Um, but I, you know how some people have got the natural cool gene? They're just cool and they never seem to do anything that's embarrassing. I wasn't blessed with that gene. And I've got story after story after story of, of just kind of stupid things um, that I've done. I remember... Uh, working, uh, I was 16 and working at Woolies in the hardware department. Trying to imagine me in the hardware department. And one day, a customer came in and asked for a jigsaw. <laughs> so can you imagine where I directed them to? It was down to the toy department. I did not realise that a jigsaw was actually an a to- a electrical tool. I, I came in for a lot of stick uh, for that one um, from my, my fellow co-workers. In the uh, late um, 1970s, early 80s, um, sorry about this image that I'm about to um, create for you, but I used to wear black plastic pants. Who was that? <laughs> uh, sorry about that, Robin. It was the era of um, Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and all of those kind of uh, great kind of... Who was that? Yeah, yeah, Brenda. (laughs) You remember that? Yeah, yeah, Adam and the Ants and all that sort of stuff. And so I kind of was... uh, I was a bit of a fashion... I loved fashion and um, black plastic pants were kind of in, which were great when you're living here in Australia in 40-degree heat and kind of... was kind of rather sweaty... But I went to the UK um, as a 17, 18-year-old who's doing my, my UK trek. My daughter is over there at the moment and I'm very concerned because I remember what I was doing when I was there. Um, but anyway, as a, an 18-year-old, I had my black plastic pants. England is very different uh, to Australia when it comes to weather. And I went out one night and it was freezing cold. It was snowing. And so in my nice tight, skin-tight, black plastic pants, I stood in front of the heater (laughs) to warm myself up. And I discovered a a fantastic scientific fact. (laughs) Heat melts plastic. (laughs) And so my black plastic pants melted, which was... You know, you're 18, you're out having fun, I went to a nightclub, and as the night progressed, my, my black plastic pants completely disintegrated. <laughs> so the image gets worse. 
And um, I had a bright pair of yellow undies on underneath. <laughs> so I was kind of like, I was, I was the star of the show as I'm dancing the night away, having a great time. Not embarrassed at all. That's not the embarrassment about my, my pants melting. That's not embarrassing. The problem was the next morning, when I'm sober, I have to get home. And there's no way that I can walk the streets. I would get arrested for sure. So uh, I was staying with some friends, and uh, one of my friends said, here, you can wear these, which were a pair of flares, flared jeans, and he was significantly shorter than I was, <laughs> and they kind of came up to here. <laughs> and so I then had to catch two buses home, sober, with a pair of flares, whoops, a pair of flared jeans, and I was so embarrassed, you know, st <laughs> standing waiting for a bus, trying to look cool, and it didn't work. That was, that was um, highly embarrassing. When I became a Christian, I thought, surely God will set me free from my stupidity. It didn't happen. Um, in fact, if anything, my, I've got more embarrassing moments to tell since becoming a Christian than prior. There's the time that I went uh, to a wedding, and I sat in the wedding for half an hour before I realized that this was not the wedding I was supposed to be at. <laughs> They're sitting there going, nah, 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 this is not, this is not where I belong. I am, uh, I, I am a romantic at heart, and I decided uh, one, one particular wedding anniversary uh, to do something special. I don't know why, but I got a van. I'm not quite sure what the idea was with a van, but I got a van... Uh, from some, somewhere, and I packed up a really nice hamper, wine and cheese and all that sort of stuff, and said, Louise, I'm going to take you out on a special date tonight. So we jumped into this van uh, with our, our hamper of, uh, of goodies, and I said, I've, gonna, I've selected a really nice secluded spot for us to go to. So we drove up there, and our wedding anniversary is uh, December the 16th, and the spot that I had chosen, um, there were 20,000 people there because they were having a carols by candlelight <laughs> event. So I said, oh, this is not going to work, is it? We'll, we'll find somewhere else. So we drove to the beach. Um, I then somehow managed to lock the keys into the van. So we then had to get somebody to um, uh, get the keys out of the van. Then after that, we kind of had this really nice romantic kind of uh, dinner and that kind of thing. I said, let's go for a walk along the beach. So there's Lou and I walking hand in hand, you know, the dusk, stars beginning to appear. And I said, oh, babe, remember when we came down here with Andrew, uh, who was my best man? I remember we came down here with Andrew and uh, he was going out with Sue and she looks at me and said, no, I don't remember coming down. I said, yeah, remember? You know, Andrew and Sue, were, you know, we came and we walked down here and that kind of thing. She goes, no, I don't remember that. And then it dawned on me, I had been with another girl. <laughs> uh, that was a bit, of a bit of a failure, that one. <laughs> then I was a fairly, uh, fairly new in ministry, or pastoral ministry, and I received a call from a family who were very, very distraught. They received some really um, challenging news. It sounded like uh, the, the mum of this family um, uh, may have cancer. And so here I, I am, a f fairly young and 
and, and a new pastor. I'm so determined to give them great pastoral comfort and advice. And so there's the grandmother and mum and dad and, and the kids all sitting in the lounge room. And here I am, the fount of wisdom. And I say, look, I don't think we should worry until we get the results of the autopsy. Do you know how you have a, you know, a rewind button that you can press, kind of? I was just, the words came out of my mouth and I went, wrong word. The word that I was really going for was biopsy. Anyway, um, yeah. Unfortunately, um, not all of my embarrassing moments are funny. Um, in the filing cabinet of, of my life... Um, I have some real, real failures. Um, I'm not just embarrassingly stupid. Um, there are times where I'm, I'm shamefully uh, sinful. I've shared with you once before a, an example of, of one of my sins, which was um, when we had somebody over for dinner. We were fairly newly married and we had invited this guest over for dinner and Louise had made chili con carne and we were just about ready to say grace. And I said to Louise, oh, where's the sour cream? I noticed there was no sour cream on the table and she said, oh, I haven't got any. And I went, what? <laughs> Completely rational. What? No sour cream? We can't have chili con carne without sour cream. And so I marched out with our poor guest kind of looking kind of bamboozled by my shocking behaviour, humiliating my wife. Louise, why don't you tell that other story? Well, the one that I can never remember, but you seem to remember really, really well. At that leadership training conference. Oh, yes. Oh, this one's a good one. Oh, I like this one. Uh, we were in a, a leadership training, so part of a uh, movement that we were with. Um, we were driven, drove, driven down to Sydney, and uh, we were sitting in the front row, and uh, uh, this guy Rigby is uh, speaking, and he, and he starts talking about uh, road rage and people that get really angry driving. And I went, amen, you know, like, and I was digging my husband in the ribs going, yet yeah, I'm married to one of those. And I... You know, it was funny and humorous and people laughed, but we got in the car to drive back to where we were staying in Sydney. Well, I got an earful. How dare you embarrass me? I do not have a problem with road... Well, I was lectured. I was well and truly... I was like, oh, my God, I have really done the wrong... And I just learned. You know, you learn to stay quiet. So I stayed really quiet and I allowed him to... And as he is berating me about the fact that he does not have a problem with road rage, how dare I embarrass him and tell other people, in front of other people, that he has this problem, a bus cut us up. And he goes for the bus driver, flash our lights, and I'm going, and I'm just sitting there going, I can't believe he's just done it. I cannot believe he has just abused a bus driver whilst we're having this discussion. Not a word is said. That night, as we are going to sleep and we're in bed, and he says, are you all right with me? <laughs> and 
I said, well, yeah, no, I'm fine, honey, but did you realise what you did today? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know when you were telling me that you don't have a problem with road rage and you don't get angry and, uh, you know, how dare I say that about you? Do you remember that a bus cut us up at that point and what you did? And I swear, Steve went white and he looked at me and went, I had no idea. He literally had no idea that he had a problem. He did not recognise that even whilst we're arguing over it, that he actually did the very thing that we were arguing right, thanks over. Thanks, you can sit down now. <laughs> He's embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. We all have blind spots, don't we? There was another occasion where we were uh, renovating um, a house and um, it was supposed to be a five-week renovation. It took about six months and so we were staying with some friends. And whenever you, you know, if anybody's renovated a house before, it's incredibly kind of tense. Um, and um, things have been heightened, let's just say that, in our relationship. And one particular time where Lou and I are having, we'll call it a disagreement. Christians don't argue, we have disagreements. We're having a disagreement and it was probably kind of a long line of disagreements that we'd, we'd had. And a little uh, daughter, six-year-old daughter at the time, uh, came up to us while we were in the kitchen arguing. And Chloe said, Mom, uh, why don't you just tell Dad you were sorry? Then she looked at me and said, And Dad, why, just, why don't you just forgive her? And it was one of those moments where it's a pretty sad indictment when your six-year-old daughter begins to instruct you on dealing with marital conflict. She becomes your counsellor. I've given you a fairly sanitised and selective view of my, my kind of history of, of sin. If you were to dig any deeper, there's obviously far worse stories than that and far more stories than that. So my stupidity and my sin have left me at times wondering, God, how could you ever love someone like me? Does anybody ever else think that? Or God, how could you possibly ever use someone like me? Somebody is so stupid and so sinful as I am. And one of the great things about the Bible is it's not afraid to tell the truth about people's lives. And um, there are many people in the Bible who have been just like me and possibly just like you, who are stupid and sinful. And one of those characters um, is a man by the name of Peter, follower of Christ, and I'm sure if Peter had come over to our place uh, for dinner and our kids were to ask him, hey, Peter, what's your most embarrassing moment? And imagine that Peter would want to sink under the table and hide because he has story after story after story of failure. Perhaps he might start um, by telling of the time in Matthew 16 where... Jesus is, is telling his disciples, he's beginning to open them up to the fact that uh, his life's mission is to actually lay down his life, to go to the cross and, 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 and to die. And Peter um, 
took Jesus aside and began to correct him and say, hey, Jesus, you might be the son of God, but I want to just kind of uh, correct your understanding of who you are and what it is that you are called to do. And you are not going to go to the cross. You're not going to die for the sins of humanity. I'm sorry, but you've got it wrong. And Jesus um, gives, I can't imagine, a more powerful rebuke than, than, than Peter received from Jesus when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that? <laughs> you know. Then there's a time in Matthew 18 um, when Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And before Jesus has an opportunity to um, respond to Peter's question, Peter jumps in and kind of thinking that he's really generous-hearted, says, I know, I'll answer my question for you, Jesus, because I'm, you know, I've got it all together. He says, I know how many times we should forgive. Seven times. How generous am I? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, oh, Peter... You should have found a friend. You got that one dreadfully wrong. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, your heart and your thinking is so small when it comes to being graceful towards those that offend you. You haven't yet seen the bigness and the capacity of God to forgive Then there's a time in John 18 uh, where Peter uh, was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the religious leaders of the day had come to arrest Jesus and and bless Peter. You know, you've got to give him marks for trying. Um, He's so well-meaning, but he's so misguided. And he thinks he will jump um, to uh, Jesus' defense. And so as um, this uh, group of... um, Religious leaders are coming towards Jesus to arrest him. Peter pulls out his sword. Now, the question I want to ask, what's he doing with a sword? Um, anyway, the high priest's servant comes near, and then Peter pulls out that sword, and he goes to decapitate the guy. Let's, let's be honest. That's what he's trying to do. But he slices off his ear. He wasn't trying to slice off his ear. He was trying to chop the guy's head off. This guy's ear comes clean off. And Jesus leans down into the dirt, picks up that ear, dusts it off, and pops it back onto the guy's head. Now, if that had been me, I would have had a bit of fun. I would have perhaps placed it (laughs) kind of there. (laughs) But not not Jesus. Jesus is kind. (laughs) If I had been Jesus, oh man, all of the places I could have put that ear... It would not have been back in that place. Anyway, Jesus does offer you. Sorry. I'm entertaining myself anyway. I'm having fun. Puts it back and he turns towards Peter and says, Oh, Peter, you know, you've been with me for three and a half years and you still haven't grasped what my kingdom and my message is all about. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. My kingdom is not a one of vengeance, 
but but it's a one of peace. Time after time after time, we see Peter acting stupidly and sinfully. sinfully. And perhaps his most well-known embarrassing moment is found in an event that's recorded in John chapter 18. It says, The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. And because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made, listen to this, a charcoal fire. And they stood around it, warming themselves. And Peter stood, stood with them, warming himself. Now, fortunately, Peter wasn't wearing black plastic pants because we all know what would have happened to him if he had have done staying in front of that fire. Meanwhile, as Peter, uh, Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. You see, the background is, is that Peter had been emphatic in saying to Jesus, you know what, I can imagine all of the other disciples, I can imagine the other 11 denying you, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm Mr. Dependable. I will never let you down. I will always be there for you. But when the pressure was on, Peter turned his back on Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter is so ashamed and so embarrassed by his failure that he does a runner. And he goes, this following Jesus is obviously not for me. I'm not cut out to be a follower for Jesus. I'm actually just, at the end of the day, I'm obviously just a fisherman. I'm too stupid and I'm too sinful to follow Christ. What could Jesus possibly do with somebody like me, with my track record of failure? See, he figures up, figures that um, God has given up on him, and so he might as well give up on God. Now, fortunately, that's not the end of the story, because in John chapter 21, as the story begins to unfold, Jesus has died and he's rose again. And in John 21, verse 3, it says, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And we'll come too, the disciples said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. And at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, jumped into the water and headed to shore. And the other stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. 
Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Thank you. Well done. You can come and grab your prezi afterwards. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then Jesus told him, follow me. I love this story and I I never tire of reading it. Peter has denied Jesus three times in front of a very specific kind of fire. It says a charcoal fire or what was literally a, a heap of burning coals. And I find it fascinating that in, the fr- in front of the same kind of fire, in front of a heap of burning coals, Jesus meets again with Peter. What is fascinating, and I love the nuances of Scripture, is this word for fire, this charcoal fire, is only ever used twice in the New Testament. One, as Peter is denying Jesus three times, and the other occasion is when Jesus on the beach restores and affirms and forgives and recommissions Peter back into ministry. I just find that such a beautiful example and illustration of the heart of God. At the moment um, of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus uses um, the, the symbol of Peter's greatest failure as an object lesson to tell him, reinforce to him, that whilst Jesus knows his past, knows his failures, understands exactly the kind of person that Peter is, that that, that does not disqualify him from being a follower of, of his. And here on the beach, before the same kind of fire that, G, that, that Peter had denied Jesus, there on the beach, before a pile of burning coals, Jesus forgives him, affirms him of his love and of his commitment. I love this story because what it does is we actually get a glimpse into the glorious but the simplicity of the gospel. And it's this. Now, how, no matter how stupid we are and no matter how sinful we are, it never disqualifies us from the love of God and from God's call upon our lives. As one who is stupid 
and sinful. I'm extremely grateful for this truth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with a sense of, oh my God, I'm just so stupid, I'm so sinful, I've messed it up, I've failed so many times. I just want to reassure you this morning that God has never given up on you. You might have given up on God, but God, not for one moment, has ever given up on you. And this morning, I just want to let you know that if Christ was here, he'd sit you down for breakfast and he'd pour out his love and his forgiveness and his affirmation on you. And all you'd have to do in response to that is to say thank you. Loving God, we thank you this morning that you love and affirm us and you bless us. Lord, we own our failures. Lord, the stupid things that we do and the, and the shameful things that we do. Lord, forgive us when we've run away, thrown up our hands and walked away from you. But Lord, we allow you this morning to pour out your love upon us. We allow you this morning to reaffirm and bless us and to remind us of the call of God which rests upon each of our lives. We are very grateful. Amen.